This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best, from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com host. When you are pioneering anything or introducing new ideas to the culture, you get criticized. You do? Yeah, did you hear about that? <laughs> I didn't find the one. I found someone I respected and we made it the one. In a sort of longing kind of view of love, people understand each other as if by magic. Nothing in itself is addictive on the one hand. On the other hand, everything could be addictive if there's an emptiness in that person that needs to be filled. I now know that nobody changes until they change their energy. And when you change your energy, you change your life. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Here we go. My guest today is Dr. Kat Cohen. Kat is an independent university admissions counselor and the founder of Ivy Wise, which is an educational consulting company that's helping to demystify the college admissions experience, which as a parent who recently went through it and is currently going to go through it again is a very overwhelming process. As you'll hear today, Dr. Kat takes a holistic approach to counseling students and families as they prepare for college and beyond. It was fascinating to sit down with her today to learn more about the current college admissions landscape. We talked about what universities are really looking for in an applicant and how parents can help their children foster autonomy and independence throughout the process, and if college is still even really important. So let's get to my conversation with Dr. Kat Cohen. So thank you so much for being here. I've been in the thick of the college process years. From a parenting perspective, I think the college process really kind of caught me by surprise because it has changed so much since I was a kid applying to college. And it's become so intricate and so intense. And I guess I kind of wanted to start with why college admissions? Tell me a little bit about how you forged this in your path. I started working really at the age of 16. So after I took the SAT, I grew up in Los Angeles, took the SAT. I had prepped with the Princeton Review. They hired me to not only help recruit more students, but also teach SAT prep classes. I definitely had an entrepreneurial spirit early on, and that was my sort of first foray into the world of admissions. I went to Brown undergrad during all of my summers. I worked for Princeton Review. And then when I graduated, I started my own 
little tutoring group and I recruited my friends who not only went to Brown, but other schools to also help. So I had a little crew of people working for me and then ended up pretty soon thereafter heading to Yale for graduate school, got my PhD, taught there and also got the opportunity to work in their admissions office as a reader. And that was so enlightening because I read applications from all over the globe and I saw the mistakes that students were making, really smart kids making mistakes and saw that and thought that's when the proverbial light bulb went off. And I thought, wow, I could really help these kids from the other side of the desk. And that's when my first idea came about where I wanted to start a college admissions business. Now, did I think at that time it would be a big company? No, I was me out of my apartment. And that's how I all started. <laughs> I used my own money to get it going and like $5,000 at the time and that had earned from other jobs and really started out of my apartment and then quickly moved from LA to New York. And people had heard about what I was doing. And one of the first things I did as an entrepreneur was I gave away a lot of free information. Like people would call me because they knew I'd, I'd taught SAT prep. And when I was doing just the tutoring, I remember there was one college counselor in Beverly Hills doing this. Like at the time, because this is over 20 years ago, at the time there weren't a lot of people doing college admissions. And she used to send me a lot of students for, for SAT prep and tutoring. And that was great. And then she asked me to help kids with their essays and things like that. And I remember when I graduated from Brown and then and then had that experience at Yale and worked in admissions, I went to her to actually work for her. I was like, oh, this is where I will get my first job. And she said, well, I'm not going to hire you unless you have 25 years of experience. <laughs> I just thought, well, hmm, I'm in my 20s and I'm definitely not going to have 25 years of experience right now. So my next thought was, oh, I got to do this on my own. So I was, you know, the first, my first really Ivy Wives was born out of a rejection, right? Like I I wasn't able to work for this woman. And I just thought, well, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this on my own. And that's how it started. A real passion for educating kids and then creating the pathways for them to attend the universities they wanted to. Yeah. I mean, I wanted, I wanted to see students succeed and I definitely learned a lot working at Yale. And then after that, I got my certification in college counseling from UCLA Extension, which at the time was in-person classes. Now you can do that online. And I learned a lot doing that and then kind of created my own methodology and started from there. So that's really how I got started and realized pretty soon thereafter that one person wasn't going to be enough to give a student and their and their family because their parents involved are involved in the process, especially if they're paying for college, feedback. Right. And so very early on, I started thinking about what an admissions committee does and they get together. Right. You have all these diverse people on an admissions committee. So what we do at Ivy Wise is we recreate the admissions committee experience. And that's what that's really our secret sauce. That's what makes us unique is that I de decided early on to hire former deans and directors of admission who were the real decision makers in those admissions offices. And then what we do is every student, their, their profile, their applications, their essays go, they get the read from the entire team. So from people who just like they're sending in the, these very personal documents, right, to a group of strangers, right? Yeah. So even though they get close to their Ivy Wise counselor, 
there is a group of people who are going to be very objective in reading that student and give their feedback. So the students get feedback from over 30 former deans and directors of admission. I think that's critical in this process in the way that we can help students because they can get that comprehensive read with diverse sets of eyes, which is what's really going on in an admissions office, the same thing. And you asked about creating the class. The hard thing about creating a diverse class today is that there's so many admissible students who truly are admissible, who have the grades and have the test scores. So then the question becomes, well, where do they fit into the class, right? And what kind of an impact are they going to make here? Who are we inviting to our campus? And you have to think about it like if you're if you're almost too well-rounded and there's nothing particular that sticks out about you, we have this saying in our office, like if you're too well-rounded, you're just going to roll <laughs> roll on the desk and roll off, right? Like you're, you're not going to be, you know, pointy or like be able to be pinned in where you're going to, what your role is going to be in that class. So the more pointy you are, angular, or the more that you have really shown commitment to responsibility and leadership expertise in a certain subject areas or extracurricular areas, the more you'll stand out in the process. Mm -hmm. And so how early should parents start? I mean, and first of all, I should just say, you know, some people are just like less intense about this, right? They're like, hey, my kid's going to go or my kid's going to go. And I'm not going to get that involved and, you know, more power to the kid and whatever the outcome. And then some parents really, you know, are more involved. I think in my case, like with, with Apple, she really, I was really following her lead. Right. And so I was, I I sort of thought, you know, I'm going to be as helpful as she needs me to be, but I, I was really sort of just trailing behind her. So how early should the process start? Like, for example, I have a friend who has a kid who wanted to go to Yale since she was a little girl, right? So she's like super focused on it. So in that case, how early do they start? Do you recommend people start thinking about it or really being strategic about their extracurriculars, et cetera? Well, colleges are looking at everything from ninth grade on. And so what I like to say to students is don't let high school happen to you. Right. Be proactive. Make the most of those four years. And I think that's where we come in as counselors. It's not about choosing your college list in ninth grade or even 10th grade necessarily. It's about okay, how can you maximize your time while you're in high school and make the most of it? Because we see too many kids who are just sort of deers in the headlights and they're just kind of high school is happening. This course is thrown at them. This, they're supposed to be doing this or that. And they they haven't really thought about it or reverse engineered it in a way. So a lot of times I'll talk to students about, like if we have to envision what the next four years look like in terms of tracking, for example, your courses, how you might be tracked, what are your interests, what you might want to study, if you have any course selection while you're in high school, your extracurricular activities, what you might want to pursue. It's not that you need to know everything you're going to do later on in life, and you might not know what you want to major in in college. And and also, you may want to explore in ninth grade, and that's a great year to sort of explore different activities and see what sticks. Try things on and see what you love to do, see what you love to study. But if you're not introduced to those things early enough, I think what happens a lot is we'll see 
you know, second semester juniors come in and they haven't thought at all about their high school process or college. And you can't go backwards at that point, right? So if colleges are evaluating ninth grade on, everything you're doing, in, not only in the classroom, but outside the classroom. So how are you spending your time? I'll meet with some kids. They'll say, oh, well, they don't have what I, my high school doesn't have what I want or doesn't offer what I want. I really want to take, you know, AP government, but my my school doesn't have that. Well, guess what? You can self-study for AP government and you can sit for that AP test. Anyone could take an AP. Oh, really? You can take an AP, Gwen. I could take an AP if we really want to. I don't think we really no, want to, but <laughs> exactly. No, thank you. But anyone can do that. And, and, and the same thing I would say about activities, I tell students, if you can't find it, found it. Mm-hmm. Right. So this is their time. I think the way, where we come in is as counselors, helping them really plan those four years of high school, making the most of it, being creative about what they can be doing with their time to show off their skills and interests and talents and think about what their leave behind is. That's another thing that students don't think about usually until later on. Like, why is their presence important every day at their school? Why is their presence important in class every day? So I we we counsel students a lot on that, on what I like to call the soft factors of admission. So beyond the grades, beyond the test scores or rankings, if, if your school happens to rank where you are, but thinking about other things like how to be present in class. I think being present is one a very tough thing for kids these days because they're inundated with their with so many apps and devices and communication tools they can be on that it's hard for them to just focus once they get into the classroom, focus for 50 minutes or an hour, however long that class is, and what's happening in the moment, being present, listening to their peers, taking in what they say, right? And how is their presence in the classroom raising the level of learning for their peers? How are they making that classroom a more dynamic place? Right. So I'll ask students, okay, if I were to pluck you out of high school tomorrow, what's missing? Why is it important for you to be there? And thinking about that really changes their perspective. Like a lot of kids think, well, I just have to go because it's like a job. It's just, I have to go to school. And I'm like, okay, well, if you have to go, how are you going to make the most of it, right? What are you doing with that time? And I think that is something that kids can be thinking about from ninth grade on and thinking about their time, thinking about their summers. And not that you have to be working all summer because I do believe students need a break. Yeah. And when we do counsel kids, we work that, we work those in. So when you're saying, you know, like the parents who, what I would call, you know, back in the day, we call them helicopter parents. I call them curlers today. Why curler? So you know the sport curling, where yeah. they are like sweeping the ice so the puck can move smoothly forward. Well, sometimes you get parents who are just so aggressive in the sweeping department that they don't they, want their kids to have any friction or hardship, right? At all. And they don't want them to fail. Right. And right, like, how did my business start? Started from a rejection. You know, I've had. You know, we've. I'm sure both of us have had many failures in life. We learn from those things. We do have to let our kids fail and get up again and learn from those mistakes. So, so yes, I, you know, while we do that, we're not curling for them. Mm -hmm. We are guiding them. We're their cheerleaders. I think one of the other big things is having adults believe in you. That's really important. We 
are the cheerleaders, we are guiding them, but we're not doing the things for them, right? So, they have to execute on their own. So, yeah. Right. So how how has it become so such an intense experience for parents? Like, what is the level of projection? I'm sure you have some crazy parent stories that I would love to hear. But That's for my own memoir. <laughs> Saving that for later when I'm 90. <laughs> but why do you think now culturally it's become so different and, and parents, you know, it's like, it's, it's almost as if it's an indictment or a statement on the parents' character and success, like where these kids get in. Yeah, I think, look, I think a lot of parents project onto their kids or they want them to go to a better school than they went to, or they want them to go to the school that they didn't get into, right? Or they want them to go to their own school, right? They want to continue the legacy. And I think, you know, as I say to parents, you know, this is not a we, you know, we are not taking the SAT on Saturday and we are not applying to Michigan, right? You already did that 25 years ago, and we are not doing this together, right? So, you know, we advise, we we also advise parents along the way. And I think it is important starting early too, to give advice to parents and, and help them through it, especially if it's their first child going through the process, know what to expect. I'm a big believer that the more armed with information, you know, you are, the more information you have, the more empowered you are, both for students and parents. I think the anxiety comes from the not knowing, right? And the not being an expert in the process. So potentially listening to your neighbors or the other parents at school, who are trying to be the experts, right? Because maybe they're, they have a student who just went through it or you know, they read a certain book. But unless you've actually worked in admissions, you're not an expert. Caution families too, when they're looking for, for outside help, make sure that you're getting the outside help from people who actually have the real admissions experience and not someone who's maybe just a graduate of the school But if they're just graduated, they didn't work in the admissions office, right? So I think there's a lot of anxiety around the not knowing about hearing the chatter from the other parents in your world or your circle, and that can heighten anxiety. I think also some other students can trigger a student, you know, by their chatter too. And a lot of what we teach our students and parents is to just sort of muffle that chatter and focus on the the vetted information that they're getting. That's the best, you know, if they're coming to us, we're giving them the best advice we can. Our website is a resource for parents, students, and school counselors, by the way, and schools. Schools come to Ivy Wise as a resource. So we push out tons of free information. We have great content on this. Yeah, we we encourage people to do that because not everybody can afford private counseling. But we, you know, one of the things from the beginning of starting this company, not only did I want to make sure at least 10% of our students are pro bono, that we're helping students really in need, but also that we are the you know, the resource, sort of the gold standard resource on pushing out actual information so people know what to expect in this process. Let's take a quick break to talk about one of our partners. This year, we launched a new Goop travel series called The Goop List. I wanted a way to share annually what I found to be the best of the best from my favorite places to stay in Italy to a truly special spa in Costa Rica. 
If you are inspired to travel more this year, perhaps because you perused our recommendations on the Goop list, hosting on Airbnb is excellent for people who frequently travel. The beauty of hosting on Airbnb is that while you're away, someone else can get as much joy from your home as you do. Alongside frequent travelers, Airbnb is also great for those who have extra space or an in-law suite that isn't always being used. If you've stayed at an Airbnb before, you know the unique experience it offers. Now you can share that same experience with others while earning some extra income. To learn more about hosting on Airbnb, head to airbnb.com slash host. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. So there are a ton of universities and colleges out there. How do you even begin fathoming the process of helping a kid narrowing down? Like, what does that process look like? It's a, so it's a process. It, it takes time. It's not going to happen in one meeting. And I think one of the tough things for juniors in high school, right, is they might get one or a couple of meetings with their high school counselor, if that, right? The ratio right now in the US, I think is 500 seniors to one counselor on average. And in certain states, it's worse. It's like a thousand to one in California, I think. It's really terrible. And so the amount of time students actually get with their counselor is very little. And that process of figuring out which colleges to keep on the list or to put on the list in the first place, it takes time. Like, we really get to know each student very well, what their needs are, what their dreams are, what kind of community they want, what they might want to study. And then what we do is we, you know, we say, cast your net wide through research and we help them with that research. And this list might start with 25 schools. We are now advising students to apply to about 10 to 15 schools, which is high and it's up from 10 to 15 years ago, when our students were applying to like six to eight schools, they've got to apply to more schools nowadays because of the numbers. We have to start with a much bigger list. And then we, we talk to them about the schools, the type of schools. We also have them start visiting. And I think 10th grade is a great time for a no pressure visit, what I call the no pressure visit. So taking spring break and going to see a bunch of schools and where it doesn't necessarily count that visit. I missed that one. (laughs) (laughs) If there is a break during fall of junior year, obviously spring break of junior year is the big time students go visit. I don't love for our students to visit in the summer because it's not like a realistic experience. You don't have the real students on campus and oftentimes not even the same professors are going to be teaching the courses. So it's hard to get the same feel in summertime. Those visits are very packed. But I think visiting schools is a great way for students to get that gut feeling. So just like when you meet someone for the first time, they're going to get the gut feeling when they get on campus, like, wow, I love this place. Or wow, I thought I was going to love this place, but I don't. And once we start getting that feedback, we start narrowing down the list. Now we make sure the list is balanced. So it's 10 to 15 schools, but some reach schools, some target schools, some likely schools. And what we say to students is they should feel bummed at the end of the day once we whittle down the list. And we usually do it around August before senior year starts. They should be bummed if they don't get into any one of those schools Mm -hmm. because they should love them all. You're basically having 10 to 15 top choices. Right, right. Yeah. That's so nice. Yeah. That's a great way of looking at it. 
Yeah, instead of, and I think a mistake that parents can make is they'll laser focus in on one school. And then if it doesn't happen, it's just a huge disappointment. And then students feel, might feel like, oh, I'm disappointing my parents because it's that they're only talking about this one school. And when you talk about the acceptance rates, which you mentioned to me just casually before we started, I mean, they have gotten so, it's impossible. Will you tell us a little bit about what's happened and and, and why have applications gone up so much number of applications and why have the admittance rates gone down so much? So students are applying to more and more universities. There's so many factors that okay. go into why they're applying to more. But what we saw just from pre-COVID to now, so if you look at like class of 2024 admit rates to class of 2026 admit rates, the admit rates are going down and the number of applications is going way, way up. So I'll give you some examples. Columbia University, they saw an increase. So over those two years, 50.62% increase in applications. So they went from a little over 40,000 applications to a little over 60,000 applications. Their admit rate went from 6.15% to 3.73%. And when you think about those numbers, I can go through some more schools, but we have to think about it for a second. A hundred percent of the applicants think they have a shot of getting it. Right. Right. So it's already a self-selecting pool. I think I threw one into like, I don't know, Williams or something. I was like, I'm never getting in here. And I was right. Right. So let's say almost 100%. But it's easier than ever to hit the submit button on the Common App, right? So it makes it easier to apply. And the other thing that made it easier is a virtual visit. So when COVID hit... Right. All the visits were virtual. So now students from all over the globe could visit schools virtually. They didn't have to go in person. And, you know, going in person can be financially, it it can be too much for families. So just the ability to visit schools virtually. And the other thing that made applications go up was standardized testing going optional. I'm going to talk about that in a second, but I want to give you a few, few more numbers. So Columbia when went up those numbers, Brown went up 37, a little over 37%. And their admit rate went from 6.88% to 5.03%. And is this true for big state schools like Michigan as well? It, this is true for so many schools across the board, not big, just, small. yeah, not just Ivy's. What are the things going back to what you said earlier that make you pointy, that make you stick out? So Pointiness can come from anything. And it really, I, I one of the things that we do is we just get to know students. We get to know our students. We get to know these kids so well and we figure them out. So it might not be something traditional even, you know, maybe you're really into sewing, you know, and that's your thing. And you, you know, start sewing blankets and maybe you start selling them or you start your own blanket business or you or you're giving those blankets to homeless shelters you know and just because you have a love of sewing so i don't it doesn't it matter be. what it is it could be anything but what we do is figure out those kernels right those like those things inside everybody that you know some students say well i don't know what i like mm. Right. Or a parent might say, well, you know, my kid doesn't really know what he or she likes. And I always say, I highly doubt that. 
let me have a conversation. And we get to the heart of what drives them because we all have likes and dislikes and we all have talents and some may be hidden, right? And may take some work to come out, but those are the things like just finding a few things. So the subjects you might be interested in. I think what I'm hearing is, well, there needs to be a real authenticity behind this as well for the kid, right? It's not just, oh, this will look good on my application, right? It's like, this is authentically me. This is what where my passion lies. This is what I want to do. And that in and of itself is a differentiator. That is core to what we do. Everything a student does has to come from that place of authenticity, right? right? They can't be engaging in activities because they think it's going to, quote unquote, look good for a college, right? right? Because then the college will sniff that out. And even their leaders are the people that are maybe guiding them at school. Let's say if they're in a just doing a club, just to put it on their checklist of things that they're doing, it's going to show through if they're not truly engaged and into it. So they do have to be authentic to themselves. Talk to me a little bit about the importance of early decision in this day and age, because those stats and percentages that you read, those are for regular admission, right? And so overall admission. Overall. Okay. Yes. So it's blended. Yes. But if you is it true that you encourage students to really pick their one school and ED and why? So it depends, depends on the student. So if a student has started with us very early, so if they started in ninth grade or 10th grade, then we've had more time with them to help them implement everything they need to do in high school, right? So we want them to be, they have to be ready as an applicant to apply in the early round. So that means if they're turning in standardized tests, they have their testing has to be complete. Their grade trend through the end of junior year has to show who they are as a student and a scholar. They have to have really have put together like what they their presentation of themselves like this summer before senior year starts to be in that early round of application. So we'll start with them as early as August 1st before senior year working on applications if they're applying in the early round. So if they are, yes, it's it's definitely beneficial to apply in the early round if you're ready and you've done your research. So if you haven't researched the schools and you haven't visited them or done virtual visits, it's going to be hard to know, should I apply to a school early decision, which is a binding decision, or whether you should apply early action or go into the regular round. So there's many different acronyms of how you can apply one of the things that we work on with students is their application strategy. Mm-hmm. So that includes if they're going to be applying somewhere early decision, if the school offers early decision or some don't. some don't and some only offer early action and some offer restrictive early action or single choice early action. Some offer early decision one and early decision two. There's two rounds. There's regular decision. There's rolling decision. There's a lot of decisions. So we take a look at the whole list and we come up with the best strategy. And so sometimes that means applying to one early decision school and many schools early action to maximize their chances. That usually is the best way, I think, because you get your decisions back mid-December and then you might not have to apply to as many schools in the regular round, which is usually due in the beginning of January, but we like to have our students have their applications done by 
by before mid-December so they can actually have a winter break Mm -hmm. and they're not rushing the last two weeks of the year trying to work on an application from scratch, which is also why we want to limit them to 10 to 15 schools. Because if you're doing, I've heard of students who want to apply to, you know, 20 plus schools, it's very hard to write 20 plus applications well. Right. Because you not only usually have to write your personal statement, but a lot of schools ask for supplement essays. And I think for us, that's where those supplement essays can be the deal maker essays, especially the why do you want to come to this school essay? And you can't just cut and paste. Right. You really have to have done your research on the schools. If there's like one thing I can tell students that's so important in this process is do your research on the schools, know why you're applying. And then of course we help them with the strategy with early, but you're right. Applying early, the numbers, the admit rates are higher. They're generally higher for recruited athletes. So recruited athletes end up in that early round and they're going to take up the majority of the, like the, the biggest group that's admitted early are recruited athletes. And then you also have legacy students who generally should apply in the early round if it's a school that they love, right? So if one or both parents attended that school as an undergraduate, that means they're a legacy. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster. They're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. As far as a personal statement goes, because I saw so many kids get so tripped up by this, like, what do I write about? Can you give us like the pointers? What what should these kids be writing about? So what we like to advise students is write about something that an admissions officer cannot learn from the rest of your application. That's really good. Something very personal, a story only you can tell. In your own voice, you don't want your parents writing it. You don't want anyone else writing it for you. So you want to write about something that an admissions officer can't learn about you from the rest of the application. So it's got to be, as I said, a story only you can tell in your own voice. Mm -hmm. If you're not funny, don't try to be funny. This is not (laughs) the place to do it. <laughs> if you're funny, do it. Put it in there. Share your sense of humor. But it literally could be about anything. And it could be just a snippet, a moment in time. You can't write a whole laundry list of your activities in your personal statement. You get 650 words. And because you're going to be, you have an activity list somewhere else. And then should parents stay completely out of it? Should they give advice? Should like how much help? is okay? Do you guys help with essays? Like, how does it go? So what we do with students is we help them brainstorm topics. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times it's okay, let's see what sticks, right? Write a couple of paragraphs and see what's interesting. We have students tell a lot of stories about themselves. And then the way we engage the parents is, you know, when you're talking about your child, let's say you're at a cocktail party and you're telling, you're able to tell little snippets or little stories, little vignettes about your own child. Sometimes from those little vignettes come 
you know, the magic, right? Mm-hmm. The magic comes out of them. And it could just be something very simple and small. You're not going to be able to write about all of your perspective on a certain, you know, I don't know, political subject or your religion or your, you know, your can't write about every single book you've read right. in the last year. You you really have to be very specific. It's going to be something small, believe it or not. But the reader should go away with understanding who you are as a person, getting like a glimpse of who you are. Like if, if you had five minutes with the Dean of Admissions, what do you want to say about yourself? This sort of just captures your es- essence. Someone said something great, which was that if the kid dropped their personal statement on the floor of their high school without their name on it and someone picked it up and read it, they would know exactly who exactly who it is. Exactly. I think that's a great way of putting it. And oftentimes what we do is we find out something we never knew about the student. And then that ends up becoming their whole personal statement. And it's so fantastic. And we're like, oh, wait a second. That's it. That's the statement. That's amazing. And and then of course we'd like them to be prepared. And then when they go back to school as seniors, they can run those statements and and their other supplement essays by their school counselor as well. So let's go back to standardized tests because yes. this is something that was required forever and ever. And then during COVID, although there were some rumblings, right, that they weren't fair socioeconomically and kids shouldn't be judged by standardized tests. And I, I felt, I feel like there was already a slight movement away from them. And then of course COVID happened and it became impossible to do standardized testing. So it was done away with, and then right for that first year, and then it became optional last year. Is that right? Well, it's, it started during that first year right. of tests because students actually either couldn't get to the testing centers or the testing centers could only be half full. Some of the tests were canceled at the last minute, right in the very beginning of COVID. So what we just saw in this most recent admission cycle is over 1,800 colleges and universities implemented either test optional or test blind. What's the difference? So test optional means you could send in a test score if you want. Like if you do have a good test score, you could send it in or you don't have to. Test blind, like Sarah Lawrence's test blind, they won't take a standardized test even if you have it. Okay. So they're just not even going to take it. So that accounted for about 80% of accredited four-year institutions. Now for this upcoming cycle right, the rising seniors right now, there's more than 1,400 institutions that are going to implement either test optional or test blind policies. So that's over 60% of the schools. Right now, every Ivy is test optional. Didn't they say for five years they were going to be there for the upcoming admission cycle? They are just the upcoming, depending on the school. Yeah. is uh, the upcoming admission cycle. You're, you're right. There is a, has been a movement away from standardized testing. So during this last year, about half of the applicants applied with test scores. And if you compare that pre-COVID, that was about 80% of applicants during the 2019-2020 cycle just pre-COVID applied with test scores. What we see is really the more selective the institution, the more tests they receive, right? So they students will who are super self-motivated and might go out and take a test anyway, are going to send their their tests in. And what we advise students is if you have access to test prep, 
And you are a good test taker. Let's say you've taken some practice tests, done some online tests. You should take a standardized test because it's just one more piece of information in your overall profile that is going to help a college make their decision. Is there is there affordable test prep though? There is. There's the, definitely online you can find affordable test prep. You can go to Khan Academy, which is a free resource. You can get tutorials on everything, all of your academics as 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 well as standardized test prep. But the SAT is changing. So this is big news. So coming up 2023 and 2024, the SAT is going to be an entirely computer-based exam. So this is new. It's the digital SAT. The digital SAT is oh, going to be- kidding. No more filling out the bubbles? Nope. It's going to be two hours. Um, So a lot shorter. Right now in the current SAT, uh, there's a no calculator math section on the new SAT. You're going to be able to use your calculator on all the math questions. The digital SAT is going to have shorter reading passages that only have one question tied to each. And then the reading is going to reflect a wider range of subjects. So each passage is going to have more to do with, with what students are going to be reading in college. The most important thing about this new test, which I think makes it difficult, is that the question difficulty is going to be adaptive. So that means you can't look ahead and see the questions that are upcoming, right, in each section. So you really need to have a strong start in the beginning, or it may be hard to recover on that test because it's adaptive. Oh, my God. Yes. So now the ACT has not announced any future changes, but I'm anticipating that they're going to adapt similarly in the coming years. So if you don't want to go into a computer-based exam next year and you want to take an ACT, that's an option. Mm -hmm. And I think, look, you know, the other thing that parents and students need to think about is that testing, you know, how you do on a test for a few hours on a Saturday morning is very different than how you perform day in and day out in school over four years, right? right? So your grades matter far more than your standardized tests. And I think a lot of people get so hyper-focused on just standardized testing, which is one piece of a much bigger puzzle, mm -hmm. that they forget that the day in and day out in the classroom is what really counts. Your transcript is the most important document a college is going to receive. But can the SAT kind of count you out immediately? Like if you have a great transcript, a bad score? I don't think it would count you out immediately. And it depends on the school. Most schools are going to be test optional, right? right? So if you so have a really case, low score, maybe you don't submit it at all because let's say it doesn't reflect your grades and we would advise a student, okay, here's the range you need to be in so it reflects the grades you're getting, right? right? And if they're not in range or it's so far out of range, then we'd probably advise them not to submit the score for a test optional school. But if you're in range or above that range, we want you to submit the score. Okay. In the beginning, you talked about reading applications at Yale and thinking to yourself, oh my gosh, these kids have made these little mistakes. What are the common mistakes that people make? So, so many things that students make mistakes on. And it's always very surprising to me to see so many smart kids not do something very basic, read directions. So that's the first thing, read the directions. If an essay, if you have an essay prompt, read the actual prompt, make sure you're answering it and addressing it. That's one of the things I see all the time where they're not actually answering the question. And then if you're given, let's say 250 words, 
to write as your response, don't respond with a hundred words, right? Use the real estate that they give you. Every word counts. You obviously don't want to go over the word count and end mid word or mid sentence, right? So the first thing is just reading directions. That is important. Other mistakes I see students make is they either shortchange themselves. So they'll shortchange themselves on their activity list. They won't calculate correctly really the number of hours and number of weeks a year they're doing their activities. You don't get that much room to explain your activities. So in this short amount of space that you have, you really have to explain what you did and what your impact was in that short little, you know, little space. So every character counts. Don't shortchange yourself. And also don't put everything under the sun on there too. Like if you did something in ninth grade for a couple of weeks, it's probably not reflective of who you are today. So another mistake students make is they are not showing who they are today as an applicant. So let's say they write a personal essay about when they're very young, something that in their childhood when they were six and they, you know, let's say they moved homes when they were six. So like, okay, that was when you were six. <laughs> who are you today? You're 17. Tell me who you are today. Another mistake students make is they'll write about something that happened to someone else. Let's say their best friend, something happened to their best friend. So I'll tell students, you can share the stage with other people in your essay, but you've got to be the star, mm -hmm. right? It can't be about someone else, right? So even if you're writing about, let's say your grandparent who's made a huge impact on you, it still has to come down to you and what you've done in your life to either you know, take the lessons you've learned from that person, but you've got to be the standout star. Mm -hmm. Other mistakes students make all the time, even on the computer, you're not going to be able to proofread perfectly with the computer. So it's not going to catch. And that's why I want to go to Columbia when that essay is supposed to go to Cornell, right? Like it's not going to catch that if you're cutting oh, and pasting. I've seen. Have you seen that? Oh, I've seen that. I've seen kids with black belts in marital arts. I've seen. I've seen. <laughs> I've seen I need that <laughs> exactly. Yeah, we all. That's great. I've seen kids who spend three hours a week torturing other students instead of tutoring them. Oh boy. <laughs> so you get these little mistakes that come up. So make sure you proofread. But I did hear someone was saying, I forget where I heard this, that at one of these super selective schools where, you know, 90% of the kids are admissible and they all have all A's and they all have great scores that it literally, sometimes it's like, I don't know who to pick. And this kid said to, you know, torturing instead of tutoring. So I'm going to take the one that said tutoring. I don't know if that's going to be a deal breaker, the one word, but I would say it, you're right. It is so competitive. The most selective schools, admissions officers, and the ones that we hire at Ivy as they say, you know, like, it's true. 90% of the applicant pool is qualified to attend. So how do we choose 6%? How do we get that? So then it goes beyond, and I think this is what's important in the evaluation process, which we talked about a little bit earlier, is they're looking at beyond the hard factors. So hard factors, they, they need to know that if they invite you to, to this school, to attend the school, you can hack it, right? You are going to keep up academically. So they need to know that you have, that your grades are good enough, that your course load is rigorous enough, that your test scores are high enough, right? So they're looking at those 
hard factors, but the decision-making, I think a lot of it, because so many kids have the hard factors, come down to other things like the soft factors. So come down to their essays. You know, let's hear their voice. What do they have to say about themselves? Why do they want to come here? They're going to be looking at those letters of recommendation. What do other adults say about this student? How have they made that impact in the classroom, right? Like, why is their presence so so fantastic every day that makes every day a great day? Do they have, you know, what I call the attitude of gratitude, you know, when they show up, a big smile on their face? Or do they love learning? Are they engaged in learning? Those are things that they're looking for. They're looking for, are they resilient? How do they respond to setbacks? How do they, you know, contribute to their community and to their peers in the classroom? So they're looking at that. They're looking at their activities. You know, what have they done over four years? Have they made an impact in some way through these activities? Shown leadership, shown responsibility, commitment to the things that they're doing. And they're looking at demonstrated interest. And this is something I think a lot of kids forget about is how are you demonstrating that if you were admitted, you will actually come? So this is critical. So because that's a big metric for college, right? The yield, how many people say yes back to them. And they're very focused on that, right? Yes. And so in order to manage yields, which is getting harder and harder with an increase in applications, right? Because with the testing going optional, it just opened the plug, you know, more and more kids from all over the globe started applying. And so how do they know who will really come? And then they look at demonstrated interest in various ways, or what I call informed interest. So it could come out in the why this college essay, Mm -hmm. it could come from did you visit? Did you visit in person? Did you do a virtual visit even? And, And they track your your digital time spent as well. Is that right? Some schools are tracking, some schools are not tracking. They may look at, have you called the office, you know, their admissions office to request a tour or to ask for information or materials. I would say if you're doing that, the student needs to do that, him or herself. They're looking at, has there been any communication with the school? I, I, I like to say that applying to college is not a declaration, it's a conversation. And so, the more you have some contact with the school or with the representative who's the area reader responsible for your area, that's great. So you have someone from a school come to your your high school to give a presentation, show up. How did you show up? Did you ask mm-hmm. questions? Did you get their card? Did you you know, email them a, a thank you for coming? Ask them any questions. Are you staying in touch? So all of those little things are are important when they're making that decision because you're exactly right. The tables get turned when yield comes into play. They want to know if we admit you, you're coming, right? And when you're in, you actually have the power in your hands, right? Because then hopefully you've been admitted to several schools And they're taking a chance on you by giving you that admissions letter. They want you there. Then you get the schools fighting over you at that point. (laughs) That's a good place to be if you're there. (laughs) Okay, I have two more questions. Okay. Is it important that kids go to college? (laughs) I went to UC Santa Barbara for a year. And, you know, I did okay, depending on who you ask. So... Here's the way I look at it. If you look at the overall stats, if you 
graduate with a college degree, you're going to make a minimum of at least twice as much on average as someone with just a high school diploma. And I've also read studies where it said you'll make at least a million dollars more over the course, course of your lifetime with a college degree. So I think it depends. It depends on the student, depends what they want. Well, for some, you know, for a lot of people, college is a complete luxury and off the table, right? For a lot of students, but we we try to find for students, because we work with students from all different backgrounds and all different socioeconomic backgrounds, not only academic fits and social fits, but also financial fits. So we are going to help students find those financial fits That's out right. there. And there are ways of cutting the costs. We're not going to go into that today, but we have all these different ways of cutting the costs down in college. But I do think, especially if you are looking at a career, let's say, in in STEM, right? So right now, the highest median alumni salaries are coming from STEM majors. So applied mathematics, you know, the, uh, the average starting salary is 71000 Berkeley's Salary average starting salary if you came out of Berkeley is seven over seventy seven thousand. But you've got like applied mathematics, industrial engineering. These are all you're going to start with a about median salary in the seventy thousand range. Material science and engineering, biomedical engineering, chemical engineering, one of the aerospace engineering, electrical engineering, all these engineering. Okay, so we sorry, want to be engineers, right? Like so, you know, computer science. If you went to Stanford. And you majored in this, the the average, you know, the median alumni salary for that major is one hundred and nineteen thousand dollars. But you could do software engineering at San Jose State University and their highest median alumni salary is ninety two thousand one hundred. So you don't necessarily have to go to a A top. top, top. Exactly. And the other thing to think about with all of these STEM majors is more and more employers are looking for STEAM kids. And so that's science, technology, engineering, arts and math. And they want kids to study other subjects, study humanities, because it it allows students to think more creatively, be better problem solvers, be different critical thinkers than they would if they were just hyper-focused on the sciences. So I think, you know, just depending what you want to do later in life, college may or may not be right for you. But I think there's something to be said for leaving home at around age 18, leaving home and going to meet people who are different from you. Because the majority of learning, I really believe, happens outside the classroom. Mm. And you you have to be surrounded by people who are different from you to expand your mind. And it's a bit of a buffer, isn't it? I mean, to, as opposed to going straight into the real world when you're 18 years old. It is. And what we have here, like a liberal arts education is our best export. International students want to come to the U.S. for this liberal arts ed- education. And so... Why not take these years to discover higher education, what you really want to focus on, what you want to study, meet different people, meet your new cohort of people in life, your new network, right? I say, you know, going to college is like you're becoming a member of a private club for life, right? Private members club, because then you're part of their alumni network for life, right? And you have access to people in all different fields. Like you go on LinkedIn, 
right, for that particular university, you can reach out to those people. Hey, I'm a student at so-and-so, and I read your profile. I'm interested in this field. Can I reach out to you? And it's it, it's really wonderful for students to have that, not only the education and the freedom to explore, but then the network to help them get on their feet and get their first job later in life. You know, this is a tough process and there's like hopes and dreams that get dashed and there are rejections and, you know, it's, it can be a real roller coaster for some kids. So how can we as parents be their best allies through the process and have their self-esteem not be impacted through the harder time? Look, this is the first big decision in their life right? In their 18 years, it's like not only where they're going to go, but it could be the first time that they've experienced real rejection too, which is not necessarily a bad thing. I, I think as parents, we have to be cheerleaders along the way. We cannot get our sight set on one grail school or the prize school. They can feel it, right? They'll feel if a parent they is mean. is focused on one place. and Yes. And we have to let them be themselves. We have to let them choose, even as as hard as that may be. It might not be our first choice, but it may be their first choice. And as I said, our students have 10 to 15 first choices and that they would be okay with any one of them. Look, at Ivy Wise, we want mom to be mom and dad to be dad. And, you know, we don't want the parents micromanaging the process. We don't want the parents nagging the students. You know, if you come to us, we're 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 taking over. I think putting this in the hands of experts is is wonderful if you if you can do that. Be very, you know, get to know your high school college counselor. That person's really important. That person's going to be writing a letter, a recommendation on behalf of your child. Be a great parent at the school. Your high school has a lot of power, right? They can write something in that letter that's not so flattering about a family. Do they do that? They can, absolutely. Not that they go out of their way necessarily, unless it's really bad, but like, be a good- between the lines? They will read between the lines. Or they might say, call me in the letter. If something has come up at school with the child or with, with the family in some way. So be a good citizen of your high school community. I think that's critical. You know, I, I see some parents, they'll, you know, call the, you know, history teacher. How dare you give my child this, you know, a C plus on this paper? I read it myself, blah, 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 blah. You don't want to do that. Yeah. So I just think, you know, be their cheerleader and don't make it a we process. Focus on them, empower them. And if you're going to have hire experts, make sure that they really are experts and that they are empowering your child to be the best they can be through the process. Thank you for tuning in to my conversation with Dr. Kat Cohen. For more from Dr. Kat, head to ivywise.com. She's also on Instagram at Dr. Kat Cohen. Thanks for tuning in. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studios. I hope you'll listen, follow, rate, and review all of our episodes, which are available for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts.